You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Uncivil Outlaw. Chapter 4. The Catalyst. Back in early August, before we opened the wind door to the autumn world, Abigail and I had experimented with our abilities, testing their limits and drawbacks. Every single portal I open, you have to close, no matter what. That's our one rule. Yeah, agreed. Christ knows what could emerge if we start leaving these hanging. We gotta be responsible. All right, let's try this. I exclaimed, my voice echoing round the white tiled walls of the very same sealed vault that would eventually house the permanent gateway to our new allies. On the far right was a desk, set about with notepads for our findings. I pulled out a pair of leather ear defenders matching Abigail's and retrieved, from the holster on my belt, a Colt single-action army pistol, the very one left in Stormcloud's engine room by Frank Butler, which was briefly in my safe-keeping. I aimed the barrel at the panel of bullet-dampening stone spring on the far side of the room. With my left hand I searched for a keyhole that felt like something safe and solid might be on the other side, and pulled the trigger. A doorway tore itself into being and my legs buckled with the effort. It felt as though I had been running flat out for ten minutes. I gasped and caught my breath, staggering slightly. In front of me, through the doorway, stood a darkened chamber of stone. Open windows looked out into a silver-blue twilight, but we heard no sounds of approach. Holy shit! Where am I looking at? Is that autumn? No. It's another world again. Another place entirely. I steeled myself and stepped through to stand on the other side. It was chilly here. The harsh night air felt out of place relative to our Washington August, and a thin layer of frost glinted on the ground. I looked back at Abigail through the doorway, illuminated by the lights on the other side. She mouthed words to me, but they were swallowed by the rushing sounds all around us. The gunshot had been so loud and echoing that I hadn't realized how all-encompassing the ambience of the open wind door was. Abigail stepped through to join me and blinked as she looked around. Something real familiar about that door. My brain's so Swiss cheese with how many worlds we've detected, though. Okay, let me try something, I said, holding my hand to the door we had come through, and this time feeling for the precise vibration of our origin world. I then stepped to my left, raised the gun again, and fired, creating a new doorway back to our vault shattering the tiles in front of me. This time I sank to one knee as the effort really pulled all of my energy away. Abigail stepped past and walked through, turning back to look at me, and then re-emerging into the dark stone chamber. Something's wrong. That's not where we came from. It's similar, but different. The tiles are grubbier. There's no stone spring plate now on the far side, and it smells damp, with no traces of gunpowder. But most of all, that doorway... Here she pointed at the one to our right. It isn't there, in that vault. I gazed at her, my mind racing. Somehow, 
We stepped out of our world A into this world B, and then I just went through into world C. I reached out to touch the area around the portal on the left and compared it with the first with my right hand. Oh God, this is more complicated than I wanted. Quickly, close it. Abigail obliged and, using her hands, funneled down the left doorway. Don't Don't touch touch the one on the right! You think I'm fucking stupid, Penrose? She shot back. I've got enough fine control and brain power not to leave us stranded in World B. We staggered back through the first portal and I slumped down on the desk as Abigail closed it up behind us. Sorry, I underestimated both your comprehension and your abilities. But that just hit me hard. Both the mechanics and the scale. And it was all I could do to not pass out. She walked across the room and hopped up to sit on the desk beside me, then patted my arm affectionately. It's okay, Doc. Probably worthwhile insulting me to ensure our safety on this one occasion. I smiled weakly and pummeled my brain for perspective. How did the two differ side by side? I thought back to how it had felt. It was like carrying two heavy bags, one in each hand, and trying to discern which one was three ounces lighter. What about Autumn? That's been the same each time. There's a secure click. I feel like an experienced safecracker there. I always definitely know I'm going to the same place. How about that stone chamber we were just in? Did that feel distinct? Was there a click? Actually, yes, that felt distinct again. Oh, crap. Cap. A notion began to crystallize. Maybe it's because the worlds themselves went in clearly very different directions. And that other version of our world is too close to tell the real difference at the moment. That fits. There's a logic here that worries me greatly. Honestly, if we're in another world and I open up a door to try to bring us back here, you could flip a coin for whether we end up somewhere else instead. And we could wind up wandering into a world sea we didn't come from. Her eye was wide with the dawning possibilities. We have to be very careful, Abigail. We could end up very lost. On Thundercloud, James and I stood at the wide viewing windows in the reception cabin at the front of the gondola. Above us, the Zeppelin's enormous balloon stretched far out and disappeared into its conical curvature. Below, the streets of Washington were approaching, close enough to see individual people going about their days, pausing to look back up at us. What did we have in store for them? Mission successful, Sid White from behind me. The doorway had slid open, and he padded into the room, Agent Lee beside him. The man was clearly gearing up to say something. So what's next? I queried, suspecting the answer. Two of the three doors to the dimension of Saitash are now closed. That means the global connection to the source of the Wendigo infection is 66% neutralized. 
We have had neither hide nor hair's contact with the individual known as Seth since your encounter in Mississippi back in July. It is my understanding that communications broke down over this very issue. So, short of an extemporized appearance from him to renegotiate, we must proceed as practicality dictates. Once we touch down, I will begin preparations for our journey to Egypt. Are we going in this thing? I asked, waving my hand around the room. I've enjoyed the speed and efficiency of being able to get to a wind door and back without my command and officer dying. Sadly, no. We can't. We wouldn't have enough fuel in a single travel load to be able to reach the African continent. And there are no secured locations to refuel whilst we are there. We must go by sea, the old-fashioned manner, and hope the military unit accompanying us can protect you all the way to the door. But once we're done with that, we're safe. I sat down at the dark mahogany table on the left-hand side of the room. Not quite. He was leaning against the wall now, his arms folded. Closing off the portals to Saitash is just the first part of our new plan to restore the integrity of our world. There are still several unaccounted-for doorways out there, so our first port of call after Egypt will be England. James perked up. Really? So Abigail and I might finally be informed as to what's going on over there. You'll be the ones to put a lid on it. You'll be closing the London door. Wait, what? And of course, before we go, we must take a trip in Thundercloud to that little back door to Rama you found this August. Seal that one up too. Wait, hold on. Is this the new plan for the NIA? What happened to Hrow and Miguel being ambassadors between our species? That has all changed in the past few weeks. We are fighting a second civil war, at the same time as our ongoing attempts to repel and eradicate the Wendigo. The RSA armed forces are spread too thinly already. If we make contact with the Cats and attempt an allegiance that fails, there are so many chaotic variables that we could be looking at an occupation from a hostile and deadly new culture. The same is true of this world of autumn. But on the other hand, if these allegiances succeed, we have crucial allies against the Wendigo. Besides which, if you close that door, you strand Rao and Miguel here for good. In response to this, White slid a drawer at his hip open, retrieved a folded piece of paper and stalked across the room unfurling it until he could lay a map of the globe in front of me. There were several circles on its surface, along with various question marks. Four of the circles had been crossed out, the ones in Missouri, Tennessee, Mississippi, and most recently Canada. When all of these are gone, our planet will be restored to the sphere of potential order that it was before 1872. If a single one stays open, we remain in perpetual jeopardy. My eyes drifted down the map and rested upon the edges of the tabletop. There were deep scratches in the wood on the side opposite me, laid there by Raoul last summer to represent the alternate earth and tribal family she had come from. I moved the map away from me to look at the long scratched line bisecting the surface of the table, symbolizing the veil between the world she had passed through with Miguel. And finally, under my gloved fingers, 
with the notches she had laid down to represent the crew of Steamheart, her new tribe. I rose to my feet, my eyes on his. Mr. White, on the day I was put forward for military service, I'd spent a long time taking in the writings of Thomas and Sarah Arlington in the cartographer's handbook. See, back then, I was all inspired by the pretty words, and I truly believed we could work together as a people. And now, we're on the cusp of new horizons. I want to do everything in my power to stay true to that initial feeling of rightness. Now, London, I don't know about yet. I suppose we'll get there eventually. But in honor of the Arlingtons and their legacy, would you consider at least leaving the back door to Rama open for now? I promise I will close it if things break down. But the bond we've already made with that cat and the human kid she took as her own deserves at least a chance. Abigail. James said from across the room. I'm with you on the unity front. Thank you. But... But... I agree with Mr. White that our world has been in danger since the moment those portals opened. My jaw fell as I stared across at my old friend. I've done my own working out, and I thought very hard about my and our abilities. You can open a doorway to anywhere! Precisely. What if I open one into a world where the planet has shifted in its orbit of the sun, and what's on the other side is the bottom of another Atlantic Ocean? If you fail to close that portal as we are swept aside by a high-pressure deluge of seawater, then potentially the stream would not stop until it has destroyed the ecosystems of two planets. Maybe more if other doors are open. What if it's not an ocean, but outer space? I don't understand what you're saying. I mean the water pressure... No, that I understand. Quit acting like I'm a dribbling simpleton just because my brain moves at less than light and speed. What I mean is... You don't want to use your ability to open doors whatsoever now? After a long silence, he shook his head. It isn't worth the risk. We're a leaking ship already. We have to repair. And unfortunately, that's not within my power. That's what you can do. Fix our damage. Your companion is an eminently logical man. Thank you for seeing sense, Dr. Penrose. I glanced at Agent Lee in the corner. Her face was unreadable, but she was watching me too. And what if I say no? White's body shifted ever so slightly where he stood. Almost imperceptibly, he rolled his shoulders. You are a government agent. Some things we give you the option to say no on. This is not one of them. What would Grant have to say about this? Grant is dead, but he wanted his people to live. And this is the most logical means to give them the best chance. Please do not do anything so arrogant and foolish as to second-guess the thinking behind this decision. Don't let your personal feelings intrude. Just do your job. His voice was calm, rich, determined, implacable. Yet there was a casual certainty within the tone of it. He wasn't petulantly trying to win a fight. He was aiming to prevent me from getting on his bad side. He turned to leave the room, 
cutting the discussion short. But I've never been one to quit on an argument. You didn't answer my question, I said to his back. Wyatt turned, slowly. What if you say no? Then we shall ask you politely one last time, Captain Gray, and remind you that you may be the bearer of this endowment, but your continued presence here upon this earth is not a priority. You are a receptacle containing power. He gestured at the window with a wave, indicating the people with heads upturned far below us. You will find hundreds, thousands of walking jars out there, and I'm willing to bet you your father's powerfully ugly cowboy hat that a great deal of them will be less troublesome. I pursed my lips and tilted my head, quickened my neck, but holding back my natural response. Instead, I slowly walked close to White and leaned in, very aware that his muscles were tensing as he readied to counteract an attack. Ah, I know who you are, I said quietly. White stared at me. I refused to blink. In the corner, I saw a thin, black blade drop into Agent Lee's fingers from the inside of her sleeve. But James doesn't know, I whispered. So take good care of him. Abigail, please just sit down so we can discuss this like civilized people. I abruptly turned about face and ran, clearing the distance between White and the glass viewing windows. At the last second, I took a pounded leap toward them, feeling the shield swell up inside my body as a sharp sensation impacted upon my left shoulder blade. It had been Lee's throwing knife. White had pursued me with frightening speed, and his outstretched hand brushed my boot heel, but my momentum was already carrying me forward as I crossed my arms in front of my face. Glass exploded out and away from me in a ball of erupting energy as I burst into the fresh air and I fell away from the ship, screaming bloody murder all the way down. This was the craziest, dumbest undertaking of my life, but part of what escaped my lungs as I plummeted toward the earth and the paved streets of Washington was simply sheer elation at this decision. The wind battered against me, blowing the Stetson off my head and thundering through my coat as the ground rushed up to meet me. This jump had taken only a few seconds, and I had time to suddenly become very afraid. The street leapt up. I braced myself and angled my shoulder down. Then there was a dreadful jolt as I collided with the ground, and it yielded to my frame in a single moment of shock. Followed by relief, and being showered with hard fragments of paving slab, I lay on my back inside a small crater, checking myself. I was unhurt. As I had hoped, or possibly prayed, the shield had formed a cocoon around me, cushioning and deflecting the force that would otherwise have rendered my body into so much paste. Even so, the wind was knocked out of me, and I still felt like I'd tumbled down a set of stone steps. High above, the zeppelin roared. I could see the faces of White, Lee, and James poking through the shattered window frame. I got clumsily to my feet before realizing something was wrong with my right arm. It wasn't moving. The shoulder was dislocated. Agony shot through me as I stumbled to the edge of an alley, 
surrounded by onlookers, horrified by this woman who had fallen from the sky and lived. I slammed my shoulder into the bricks and roared in pain as my arm crunched back into its housing. Ah! My hat drifted down on the wind to land at my feet. I leaned over, picked it up, and set it back upon my head, squinting up at the zeppelin as it began to descend and dashed through the alley. I vaulted over a fence, stumbled through another alley and out into the next street. A man on horseback veered to avoid me and I grabbed the reins of his piebald mare. I'm so sorry. I yanked him down from his perch. You're Captain Abigail Gray. Listen, I continued to the bewildered fellow. I need your horse, but I don't want to steal from you, so take this key, go to 14 Mason Street and let yourself in. Under the bed, you'll find more than enough military credits to pay for the horse. But could you please, out of common courtesy, not rob me blind? Just lock up after and throw the key in the Potomac. He gawped at me in confusion, but nodded. I didn't think I'd ever meet you. My name's Gerald. Good to meet you, Gerald. I also don't want to hit you, but it's probably going to be better for you if it looks like I did, so... I prompted and swung a right hook wide of his face. He nodded and flung himself backward onto the street, nursing his cheek. I threw my leg up and over the saddle and gave him one final look of gratitude as I galloped off towards Langley. You have been listening to episode four of Uncivil Outlaw, The Catalyst. Written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Captain Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Dr. James Penrose and Mr. White, performed by Alex Shaw. Gerald, performed by Chris Chipman. Shores of Avalon, Thunder Dreams, Movement Proposition, and Infados, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Uncivil Outlaw Theme, True Greatness, performed by Bjorn Lynn of Shockwave Sound. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 supporters get credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Sabard, Michael Hasco. Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chesham. And I am currently researching how best to contribute to funds related to Black Lives Matter. 
as soon as I've found the best place to put our support, you will know. This is, I don't believe it's hyperbolic to say, the most stressful time in human existence. It's chaos. Be kind. <laughs>